1: Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Molly Hudson of The Times, by Rich Lafferty, creator of the Women's Top 100, and by Anne Marie Batson, broadcaster and writer for Five Live and The Voice newspaper. Stop me if you've heard this before. Arsenal are playing Manchester City in the Women's League Cup final on Saturday. They've met three times in the last four finals. Arsenal have won the cup five times in its seven years. Guess who won it on two other occasions? Manchester City. They lost 1-0 in last year's final.
2: Is it their turn this time? I think it could be. I think if you'd looked at it at the start of the season, you'd, you'd have backed Arsenal. They made such a good start. Um, they are really impressive in the league. They just looked unstoppable. And then they've just had injury after injury. And it's been to key players, which is seem to have really halted their progress. And then they seem to be trotting along fine and then it suddenly hit them. You know, the fact that there were less players in the squad, their benches have been pretty weak, there have been a lot of youth players on there, although they have been impressive. You can't compare that to people like Jordan Nobbs and obviously Kim Little when she broke her leg earlier in the season. So I think, you know, Man City and Nick Cushing, they'll be looking at this as a good time to play Arsenal if there ever was one.
3: So in in a sense, it could be like season-defining, Rich. It could be, yeah, I mean momentum at the minute is probably with man city in terms of results as molly says arsenal have had a lot of injuries which they're still picking up results but it's really knocked them off their stride as we saw on sunday you know losing 3-0 at chelsea we wouldn't have seen that in the first half of the season and man city at the moment are probably the best team out of those three they're probably playing the best football because they've got everyone fit at the moment and you know taking that momentum into the rest of the season i agree with molly i think man city will Just nick it on Saturday. In in the women's game, Amory, is squad depth often
1: decisive?
4: I think it is very decisive. I think particularly at this point of the season now, where it's all coming to an end, it's all coming to the big crescendo. And it's hard to decide, actually, which of the teams has the greater squad depth. I mean, you can look at Man City and you say, yes, they definitely have the squad depth, particularly with the youth academy that are coming through. Then you look at Chelsea, you think, goodness, you look at the bench that they have, fantastic. And then you look at Arsenal's and you think, ah, actually, it's all coming to roost now in terms of like what Molly and Rich have said in terms of their injuries. So, for me, the two teams, I think, that have the greater squad depth. And it is quite important now, given the run of games that we've got coming up for the end of the season and the competitions, is definitely Man City City
1: and Chelsea. Mm. You talk about a coach like Joe Montero. he's talking about building a group and developing a DNA. What in practical terms does that mean?
2: I think he's, he's keen on playing the Arsenal way, as cliche as that sounds. I think he, he came into the club, obviously, when he first came in, he was kind of mid-season, he didn't have a huge amount to work with, and then he's had this time with his players now, and at the start of the season, we definitely looked at it and went, You know, that's Joe Montemore's stamp on that team. You can see that they were his team. They play really good football, obviously, when they've got all the players that are able to do that and the top-class players that they have. You look at people like Jordan Nobbs and Kim Little, and they were playing some of the best football that they've ever played, particularly Jordan Nobbs, um, just before she got that injury. So I think he was definitely bringing out the best in his players and there's a real team mentality there. And I think maybe that part of that is the fact that they have still managed to keep picking up points and they are still, you know, in the final of competitions and near the top of the league despite all of those injuries that they have had.
3: Mm, what about the Dutch influence there, Rich? I think obviously Mar this season's having a once-in-a-lifetime kind of season, but I actually spoke to one of the Dutch players the other day and in terms of what Molly was saying about the DNA, she just said it was fun, you know, it's fun again, which it probably wasn't before Joe came in and she said, We haven't really improved as players, but we've got a manager now who is dictating to their style of play. And actually looking at it and saying these are the players i've got which system best fits those and at the start of the season you know he was getting the best out of danielle vanderdonk jordan nobs kim little Miedemar, everyone obviously injuries have hit that a little bit now but yet yeah, the dutch influence has been massive you know midemar last season had some injuries it didn't really happen for her but you know she's broken every record in the book already this season danielle vanderdonk's in double figures and even dominique bloodworth as well you know we all saw the assist she got against manchester united there's not many players that can play that kind of pass. So those three Dutch players, and obviously Van Veynendael as well, who have not really been their number one this year, but she's still a fantastic goalkeeper.
4: If you're him from the sidelines, he's constantly shouting instructions. When I was watching the game yesterday, you can hear him, me, you know, he's going, right, pass this, now hold, 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 now pass. He's constantly at it, constantly giving the players instructions. And what I find fascinating about Joe Montemuro is that he truly believes they need to be proactive, they need to be on the front foot from the minute the whistle goes to the minute the game has finished. And when I've spoken to him, he believes in that, he instils that philosophy in his players. It's about possession, it's being on the front foot, and it's also being about proactive as well.
1: Mm, You mentioned about City's academy. Mm. What about development pathways for young players, young homegrown players at Arsenal? Is that as good as it could be?
4: It's a difficult one to answer really. I'm not entirely sure it could be as good as enough as it should be. When you look at City's academy and you see the young players that are coming through, you do look at Arsenal and think, where are the the young players going to come from? I don't know what you guys think on that respect, but you do wonder, don't you?
2: I think they've probably been pushed into the spotlight too early this season. You know, you look at the players and undoubtedly there's huge talent there. Someone like Ruby Grant who managed to get that hat-trick in the FA Cup. And I'm sure Joe and the team at Arsenal and the academy coaches... Had a pathway for them as as any club do for their young players, and it's almost been thrust into the spotlight because of how many injuries there've been, and the fact that the squad depth maybe isn't there. So they've been put on the bench in those times where they've had to come on, and you know maybe they weren't quite ready. But I think you know someone like Ruby Grant, it, it can only really help us. <laughs> so it's a kind of sink or swim moment, isn't it?
1: Mm-hmm. On the other end of the scale, we look at Manchester City. Okay, we talk about their academy products, but Steph Houghton. Now here's someone who, even to someone with my sort of you know, relatively limited knowledge of women's football, I'm very aware of her status within the game, almost a symbol of what is possible. For an audience who may not be that au fait with women's football, how good is she? And can you give us some idea of her character and how and why she's been so successful?
3: I think Steph... Nick Cushing always makes me laugh when I ask about Steph because he just says, Steph is Steph. And that's, it. that's how he always sums her up, but... She's been thrown into the limelight because of the fact she's England captain. Obviously, Mark Sampson made her England captain. And I think also with Team GB in 2012, you know, no one really knew too much about Steph outside the game. And as a defender, you weren't expecting her to be the one popping up with the goals. She scored three goals. Everybody knew about her all of a sudden because she was doing it on probably a bigger audience than even a World Cup because it was the London Olympics. But in terms of her character, everyone you speak to about Steph you know, says how much of a leader she is. How dedicated she is to the game, even when she was a youngster. She's had some really tough hurdles. You know, she's had two leg breaks, she's had an ACL, or when she was young, she missed two major tournaments in a row because of it. And I think to come back from that to lead England in a World Cup and to probably lead England in a World Cup this year, it says it all because, you know, a lot of players would sink or swim at that point, you know, and she's carried on, she's got to the top of the game. She's been one of the top defenders in the country, and she's a great ball-playing defender as well. You know, she can play out from the back. She reads the game so well, and I think just all round, she's just been a great advocate for the game as well. Because you know, you don't she doesn't too much media, you know, she keeps herself to herself, she leads a quiet life. And I think she's you talk about role models, I don't think there's many better than Steph. Mm. Talking of role models, Nikita Paris, yeah. young 24, um,
1: an interesting, almost Rooney esque background, top stiff. Mm. Uh, indoor football but a street attitude and she's got an academy again there's a, there's someone who actually you know we always overplay the, the the phrase don't we role model but actually she is one
4: she is a fantastic role model for sure I mean you just mentioned her age you know look what she's achieved so far plays for England is one of the leading goal scorers in the WSL correct me if I'm wrong but that's I think that's the case you said she's set up her at academy <clears throat> played on the international stage I mean all this before she you know 24 25 it's amazing and she talks about I was reading um, up on her over the in the last few days and she talks about the values that she has she brings to the pitch she talks about hard work she talks about dedication she talks about perseverance and she talks about determination you can see that the way she plays she's so passionate when she plays that she wants every ball she wants to score Every single goal. And you just see that hard work ethic really shining through on the pitch. And she's a fantastic role model for the young girls and boys who want to come into the game and look what can be achieved despite your background, which she's very proud to talk about. And she says in terms of her academy, she wants to be the face of the academy, but she wants to be present at the academy as well. She wants to take part in the classes. She doesn't just want to be a face. She wants to be the beating heart of that academy too.
1: Mm, And that's why the England team and by definition the World Cup in this, this summer is going to be so important for the women's game, isn't it? Create new heroines.
2: Definitely. I think we're at a stage now where the likes of Nikita Paris and Steph Horton, they are, they are known probably to a wider audience. Like you say, people that maybe aren't even massively interested in women's football know who Steph Horton is now. And, you know, She is England captain. And I think that's definitely something that you know, shows how far we've come for the game. But also how far we have to go, I suppose, because, you know, these are model professionals, but they'll never be looked on the same way that the England men's captain would have done. And I think, you know, we talked about last summer and Gareth Southgate and how the whole country got behind that team. It was just, it was an amazing moment, even if you weren't a big fan of men's football, even there those people that had never really, you know, probably don't avidly watch the Premier League week in, week out. And I think that's what women's football can do. And that's what Phil Neville's England can do if they play well at the end of the day.
1: And at club level, there is, okay. it's not quite a meritocracy at the moment because we've got sort of three or four clubs at the top, certainly top three. It's very tight at that top, isn't it? And can you give us some idea, Rich, as as someone who's obviously steeped in the WSL, what are the standards like now compared to where they they were when they started? And, you know, you look at Chelsea
3: and City and Arsenal, they're really top-class sides, aren't they? Mm, I think at the top, in terms of outright quality, it's probably still quite similar. So, because Arsenal back then they still had Kim Little, you know they had great players like Jane Ludlow as well, Kelly Smith, Rachel Yankee, you know, who probably at their peak are still better than anything we've got now. But consistently, Chelsea were a bottom of the league team when the WSL started. Man City only came in in 2014. Birmingham, you know, have always done a fantastic job. Bar one season, they've always been up there. But at the start of the WSL, you'd get a lot of six, seven nils things like that. Now last season you still got it a little bit when teams were part time but now you're not getting it too much with the league going full time you know you're seeing bristol you know taking points off the top teams brighton i think got a draw against chelsea you know Yoville have improved this season and i think it's that the quality is similar at the top but you know they're training every day now the strength and conditioning is going up the fitness is going up they're on more international camps so everything's just being pushed a little bit more and a little bit more I think the players are still top quality and I think they were top quality seven years ago but I think it's everything around that you know the training facilities the stadiums like I said the strength and conditioning I think all of that is improving it's allowing them to not just be better players but professionals and athletes mm, yeah I put it down to Coven to
1: see Emma Hayes last week and what struck me was that collectivism if you like you know the the professionalism of the support group um, and also the depth of that squad. You know, going back to what we talked about earlier, you've got Carly Telford signing a new contract. How many goalkeepers do they need?
4: That's a real statement of intent, isn't it? Indeed, isn't it? That was a question that was put on social media actually uh, yesterday about how many goalkeepers do does Chelsea need. But it's the same within the Premier League. Some of the you know the big teams have three. Goalkeepers. It's the, it is that setup, as you say, like at Cobham. You go down there. There's that nucleus of the conditioning, the training that Rich has talked about. The fact they're training every single day. They're looking at video analysis. They have a nutritionist. It's all very much a professional setup. As, as
1: yeah, well. they, they had an hour when I was with them. They had an hour's meditation Great. in a quiet room. You know, <laughs> it was perfect. I could I could do my interview without any problems. <laughs> um, Chelsea, I suppose, like all big clubs, would be defined by how they do in Europe. They've got. Paris Saint Germain in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, is that a winnable tie?
2: I think if Chelsea play at their best, then yes, it's winnable, it's tough. but I think what we've said about the Champions League in this country for you know a couple of seasons now, maybe two, maybe three, you know you've got you've got your leons and your Wolfsburgs and then you've got a gap to everyone else. And I think even, I mean, maybe at the start of this season, obviously Arsenal weren't involved in the Champions League because of their league placing from last season. But that Arsenal that we saw at the start of this season, that might have been in contention. Not consistently, but, you know, it's over in that one game. You know, it could, it could happen. But I think we are, English football is still behind the Leons and the Wolfsburgs of this world. I think Chelsea, yeah, they've got a chance against PSG. But then you look at who they're facing, and that it it just looks tough. I think. Yeah,
1: obviously they're going to face the winners of the Mm. the Leon Wolfsburg tie. Molly says
3: we're behind them. In what areas are we behind them? It's hard to put your finger on it. I mean, I watched them last year against Wolfsburg, and I thought actually Chelsea had half a chance last year because they were playing so well, they were flying along, and you know by the first five minutes of the first leg they got nowhere near Wolfsburg, and I think it probably just hits home actually that. You know, the German League, the French League, the top teams, they've been professional for quite a bit longer than ours have. They've got that extra experience. They've been there, they've been in finals, they've won tournaments. Our teams haven't, bar Arsenal, you know, and even that was over a decade ago now. And I think just missing a little bit extra quality, a little bit extra experience, I think it's a combination of a few small things, but you know, this year PSG, it's a winnable game, but they have to be at the best, as Molly says. I think Leon and Wolfsburg, particularly Leon. You know, you look at Leon's team. There's literally there is a world class player in every single position, and you know that's the reason why they've won it three years in a row. And I just think, unless there's a massive reshuffle at the top clubs, bringing in genuine, complete world class players now, I just don't think that they'll push them close. You know, like Man City did with Leon last year. But I just think we're just still missing that little something.
1: Are we in a stage now where recruitment, you know, as in the men's game, is going to be critical? Uh, you know, I noticed that uh, Pernil Harder last week signed a new contract at Wolfsburg. Part of me is guessing that part of that is to keep her there rather than go somewhere else. Is that part of the sort of growing up process, if you like, that women's football has to do? It has to get more sophisticated in its scouting and recruitment.
4: It's a really good question um, I think it's the natural progression it's the natural evolution of the leagues and, and particularly of the Champions League the way that it needs to grow it does need to be More sophisticated. I think it needs to be more analytical. It needs to look more at the technical aspects. I guess with picking up Rich's point about the differences with the Champions League, is it because it's more seen as a more technical side of the game when you up that level, when you play in Europe? And I think in terms of scouting and looking at players, the WSL has to be attractive to show that it is a league that is competitive. It's a league that that has teams that win consistently as well because that will be attractive. And now that the... I think the WSL has only won maybe with the USA fully professional, you think that would be quite attractive now to scouts in terms of selling that opportunity to players in Europe who want to come and play in the WSL. I think it's a myriad of different things.
1: Mm. Talking to Emma Hayes, she, she's of the belief that the WSL is very close to being the best league
2: in the world now. I think it's an interesting one, just going back to your point about transfers. I think you look at the fact that Lucy Bronze left Manchester City to go to Lyon and... Yes, undoubtedly, she's become a better player. And in the same way that if you become the best in the Premier League, someone like Eden Hazard, for example, mm. automatically the talk is of a Real Madrid. And it's, I think it's like that in women's football. I think if you get to the best in the WSL, you still want more. You still, you still want to win the Champions League. No, no, that was a big part of Lucy's decision to go over to Lyon. Um, and I think in order to stop players doing that, you've got to change at home because it doesn't matter what a team offer if you're happy where you are, but if you're at home and your team can't win the Champions League, then as a player, ultimately, if you want that trophy, you're always going to look elsewhere. Aren't you?
1: Mm. Is, it, is it as simple, Rich, as, uh, you know, let's look at the lowest common denominator, money. You can get more money playing for Lyon than you can for Man City.
3: I think it's always going to be a factor, especially in the women's game because you can't retire off wages. In the Maybe one day you might be able to, but certainly not now. And... I don't think you can begrudge any player moving for higher wages because, at the end of the day, you know I spoke to a footballer a few weeks ago in the men's game, said, "Well, it's the same in any job. You work your way up. You know you want to earn more money. Well, why should footballers be looked at differently? Mm. You know if you've spent your time getting fifteen thousand a year and you get offered thirty, forty, fifty thousand a year, you're going to take it." But I think as well, it, it comes back to a discussion we have in the men's game too about the actual location as well. You know we're talking about. Pernille Harder's teammate at the minute at Wolfsburg, Carolina Graham Hansen, who's out of contract. And she's one of the best players in Europe, and Chelsea are linked, Arsenal are linked, Man City are linked. But people are saying at the minute Barcelona are the favourites. And even though they've possibly not got the strongest team compared to the English clubs, it's that part of, you know do you want to spend your next three years living in Manchester or do you want to spend your next three years living in Barcelona? It's, it's
4: that name, it's Barcelona. It's
3: exactly, yeah. Just the but it's name the, itself. But it's the heat, it's, yeah. the, you know, it's the weather and all those things that we talk about in <laughs> yeah. the men's game. Players are going to be more likely to go and want yeah. to live in in sunny Spain Rather than in Manchester, where it's raining every five minutes.
2: <laughs> Not uh,
3: much I can do. <laughs> okay, yeah. By the way, Manchester Tourist Board, don't get
1: in touch. <laughs> um, yeah, look, but that that is interesting, Amory. You know, you talked about Barcelona, and you know, in the men's game, it's it, it's an institution, it's a cultural institution, a political institution. The very fact that Barcelona are getting involved in women's football, and actually, that's a contrast to Real Madrid. That is a huge statement of intent. And a good one for the women's game, isn't
4: it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen that Tony Duggan plays for Barcelona. That was—I d- I remember when I read about that, I was like, "Wow, that's amazing!" Going to Barcelona because she wants to still wants to win things. It is very true. I think the fact that Barcelona are now stepping up and they're attracting more women to the game, I think, is fantastic. But you're right; it's the name Barcelona itself. The minute you say that word, well, people know it's about the football and what attraction it brings to players. Mm.
1: Let's look at uh, the international dimension one if we could. England preparing now for uh, the She Believes Cup. There's some very significant matches in there aren't there?
2: I think there is obviously Japan stands out because they're in our World Cup group. So obviously that's, that's the big one that I think as journalists we'll probably all be keeping an eye on to see you know how that goes down. I think it's all quite an interesting one personally. I remember going to the Brazil friendly that we had a couple of months ago. And it wasn't the Brazil you expect, but maybe it was because it wasn't a tournament. You know, there was nothing really on the line. It was just a friendly. And I think that Brazil team will be a completely different proposition to the one we faced. Um, so, again, that will be interesting. And then, you know, as always, America are such a strong team. And even though they haven't been the greatest of form, it should be a really good tournament. You know, there's, there's a lot of quality players on show there.
3: What do you expect to learn from it, Rich? I think it'd be really interesting. I think it's become more interesting since the World Cup draw because, you know, as Molly said, you always want to play the USA because they're the number one team. They won the last World Cup. But Japan, of course, are in our group at the World Cup. We haven't played them since 2015. So I think that's probably the game you're going to learn the most from in terms of how much they give away to each other kind of thing leading up to the World And even Brazil, again, as Molly said, you know they were a bit underwhelming. In the friendly, and I
4: think fair, the weather played a nice yeah. part in yeah. that. We we'll talk about the
3: weather again, <laughs> but Sorry. you know Brazil have kind of <laughs> underwhelmed for a number of years now. But in terms of you know we've got Argentina in our group, it's probably decent preparation in terms of the kind of style of football, the physicality that sometimes South Americans, the intensity they play with. So if Brazil bring their A game, you know that would be quite a good preparation. So I've always said you don't learn everything from friendlies because they don't matter. You know, it will only matter in this. If we beat Japan now, no one's going to care in July, and vice versa. So, but I think we need to learn more about Phil Neville's team, what his first eleven is going to be. I don't think we know that yet. Mm, that's a
4: really good point. I think though. we
3: know his squad. I think we're close to knowing what his 23 might be, but I don't think we know. You know, we don't know who his number one is. his
4: number ten?
3: No, we probably know. His, we probably know his defence. <laughs> but after that, you know, it's pretty open with players coming in and out of form. Ellen White back from injury. You know, Frank Kirby at the moment. Largely sat on the bench mm. at Chelsea, so I think really the only thing you look at and say that's what we know is probably he's back for.
1: Mm. Give me a, a progress report if you could, Amory, on on Phil Neville.
4: When the news was announced that he became the manager, uh, I was in a bit of a surprise really because that was completely left field, wasn't expected, and yeah. I and then the whole questions about his appointment came about and was it transparent and I got on my high horse about that. Anyway, <laughs> since then he's he has impressed me. To be fair, I think he's been very open about what he wants to do, how far he, where he wants to take the team, how far he wants to take them. I think Rich makes an excellent point that we still don't know who his number 11, you know, his 11 players are going to be. But I find him to be very approachable, very honest, very transparent. And he, yeah, as I said, I think he, he has personally, I think he's quite impressed me, despite the whole shenanigans how he got the job. I do think he's brought that extra gloss, too, because it is Phil Neville and everyone knows who Phil Neville is.
1: Mm. What about career progression and pathways for domestic coaches? You know, Tanya Oxladee at Bristol City was the manager of of the month, Uh, yet when Birmingham were looking for a manager, they didn't go. they, They went to Marta Tejedor. Why?
2: I think the fact that Marta got the job was a bit of a... Bit of a left field choice but obviously she does have a lot of experience in the game but I think it's a difficult one I think where we're at at the moment some people still look at women's managers as using the games as stepping into the men's game I know it's a question that gets asked to Emma Hayes a lot at mm. Chelsea and I think it's a bit of a shame that we're still kind of in that phase where why can't you have women's football as a career as a coach and manager why can't you be the best women's football manager, why do you always have to be looking to go to the men's side, you know? Mm. Um, and I think, to be honest, in terms of Tanya Oxby, I think she's, she's done wonders with that Bristol side. And I think, why, why would she want to leave at the moment to go to Birmingham? I think she's done so well with that team, and it, it's a project she's building. And, you know, the results have shown that. As, you, as Rich said earlier, you know, they've had some really good results and took points off the big clubs
1: mm. this season. It's quite interesting, you know, you, you mentioned Emma. From my experience of her... I could see her making an impact in the men's game, not as a coach, although I think she's a very good coach, as a broader strategic thinker. Chelsea are crying out, the men's side are crying out for a sort of a director of football, sporting director type of figure. She's got the experience, she's got the emotional intelligence, she's got the football credibility and she's got business knowledge because she's a businesswoman at heart. Surely, that was the sort of role that she could and should be having.
3: I think we will see it one day. I'm not sure how long it will be, but we've seen it around the world. You know, Corinne Diacra, the France national team manager now, she managed in the men's game in the second division. And we've seen managers, male managers, go between the spots pretty regularly, to be honest with you, which is maybe where it will be with the women one day. But I think in England, there's still that kind of sort of a stigma around it, almost in terms of women moving into, you know, the men's game at a high level. But Emma's a fantastic, you know, and she's very steely as well, you know, she's determined. I think she'd hold her own in a male-dominated changing room, no problem. I think some coaches probably wouldn't, I think it would be quite a lot for them, but Emma is certainly one I look at and think she'd be the most likely, I think, to cross over. And I think she spoke before, saying you know she'd be quite open to doing it, in because she she loves club football, she said that when the England job came up, mm. you know she likes being out on the training pitch every day. And I think actually Emma, I think if anyone was going to do it and hold their own in that kind of environment, I think all the reasons you just said there in terms of her determination and her character, I think actually Emma would be very very good at it. I'd be really interested to see whoever it was, to be honest, whether it was Emma or someone else, just how they got on. And I think we will see it one day, but. I just don't see it being quite yet. Mm. Well, I suppose the reality
1: is, if you look at someone like Luke Swindlehurst, before the FA Cup tie, he leaves the club at London Bees to join Barnet as the men's under eighteen coach. That tells you everything, doesn't it?
4: Mm. Long overdue for Rachel Yankee, can I just say I'm so delighted for her because she's, you know, a former Arsenal winger, former England international. With uh, how many caps did she get? 129. Thank you. I think. Has
1: <laughs> I'm with you in a pub quiz, okay? Okay. <laughs>
4: yeah That's why I looked at Molly to answer that question for me. Um yeah, it's fantastic. I think it's long overdue for Rachel Yankee. It's um it is the way that I think that it is going and it's great that there is opportunity, but it is about still creating opportunities. We talked about pathways before for youth players. It also we're talking about pathways for coaches to come through and I know it's something that's within you know, the FA's been looking at that for a period of time. I, I can't really talk about that too much because I, I, don't, I haven't seen the results as yet. But I think it's really important that there is encouragement for people to get involved more in the women's game, particularly on, on the coaching side. I am struck, though, by Birmingham's... I mean, when Mark announced that he was leaving for Birmingham, I was actually gutted because he's one of my favourite people to interview pitch side. Um, and I think he's done a fantastic job at Birmingham. As you said, like uh, Mitch mentioned taking points... Off the teams. They were all, for me, Birmingham was slightly the dark horses of the WSL because mm. they're the ones they were happy to take on the big teams and show them their mettle. Um, I'm a bit surprised that Birmingham didn't look in house in terms of looking at coaches available here, but obviously, Marta is the best person for the job and I, and I wish mm. you all the best.
1: Because there are female coaches working in the male academy system, aren't they? And my hunch is that that's where your you know, trailblazer will probably come from. Mm. You agree?
2: I think, like you say, I, I had the exact same thought when I saw the announcement. Obviously, as Anne-Marie says, firstly, absolutely delighted for Rachel Yankee. But secondly, Luke ended up as a under-18 coach, you do kind of think, is, is that where we're at? Is that where we see the women's game as the equivalent to, like, an academy, a men's academy? But yeah, I think it's an interesting one. I think, as with any job, you you look everywhere in terms of where the best candidate for that job is and, obviously... Um, Marta was seen as that by Birmingham but yeah I think there's definitely room for people to progress and I think the game is particularly the women's side but hopefully the men's side as well I think as Rich said it's a couple of decades maybe behind <laughs> but you know I think there are opportunities for young female coaches now
1: mm. Let's look outside the, the WSL Rich if we can can you give me an idea of you know your impressions of, of Manchester United's progress And, and I saw you yeah, you know, saw them win 7-0 against Leicester in midweek last week. Um, you know, they are a force and there will be strategic support, so one assumes that when they go up they'll do pretty well. Uh, where do you think they are at the moment and where how good can they be?
3: I think league-wise they're about where we expected. You know, we expected them to be challenging for promotion. They probably will go up. They've got a game or two in hand, so the table's a little bit false in terms of when it all evens itself out. I think in terms of Cups, they've probably exceeded expectation a little bit. I mean, their team is capable of challenging the the WSL sides they've beaten. But actually doing it, you know, when you've got a brand new squad, a lot of young players is is a different thing. And against Arsenal, I think they really held their own in the Continental Cup a few weeks ago. And I think that's a really good sign for the future. You know, they've taken a lot of stick for being in that league and and sort of dominating a lot of the games. And, you know, the fact they're a full-time team and, They've got such an advantage, you know. We were talking about Crystal Palace earlier, you know. When you compare that to what Manchester United have got, and you think they're in the same league, you know, it, it's night and day, chalk and cheese kind of thing. Where they go next, I think, would be really interesting. I think this summer, if they go up, you know, you're going to add players. It's just natural, you know. Whatever happens, men's or women's football, whichever league you get promoted, you add players to your squad, and players move on. But I think it'd be sort of more interesting because last year we kind of had a, an idea of the sort of calibre of players you know they were a lot of rumours early on and I think now it'll be that where do they go next season do they carry on down that route promoting young English players or do they need to look abroad now to challenge Chelsea to challenge Arsenal to challenge Man and even challenge Birmingham because the results we've seen against the WSL sides would place them around that fourth fifth sixth position which would be okay next year you know I think Casey would be happy consolidating but in years to come, that's not going to be enough. You know, Manchester United won't accept that for what they've invested. And, you know, for all the years we said they need to get a women's team, if they're going to do it, you know, they've shown they're going to do it properly. So I think in terms of where they go next, it's going to be really interesting in do they keep developing what they've got? Do they start buying still English players, but of a higher calibre? Or do they start going abroad and thinking, like Chelsea have done, that's where the better players are, the more technical players. Mm. Corporate
1: pride's going to play a part as well, that United can't be seen just be making up the numbers.
4: It's funny you say that, really, because, of course, United didn't have a women's team for a very, very long time.
1: Well, I was told a couple of years ago by a senior figure at the club, we don't know how we can monetise it, quote, unquote.
4: Right. (laughs) Well, now... uh, But they've changed. They've changed, yeah, they've changed. And, you know, um, it's good that they're there now. I think they've seen the light. The fact their attendance is now a, a, a... what, 2,000? They're regularly it? in the regularly? thousands, yeah. Mm. They'll do brilliantly in the WSL, and I think commercially it would, it's just going to explode. Mm. Many others. And I think people will be delighted to get a derby in the <laughs> WSL, yes. which we don't have at the moment, which adds extra spice to the league.
1: Yeah, and, and also you mentioned the attendances. Um, you know, we've had this conversation before. I was really struck by the the logic of the City-Chelsea game being played at the academy stadium you know before the first team fixture okay city have got fantastic facilities and they can do that but as a principle is that a good thing that you almost marry the two the men and the women's game
2: it's definitely a good thing and in an ideal world we do that for every game but i know we've talked about it on here before Mm. and we've all talked about it both personally and in print It's a logistical nightmare. Whatever you do, wherever you put the fixtures, you're clashing with some kind of men's football. And if you're not clashing with some kind of men's football, you're putting the game at a time that may not be as convenient for the people that would attend. You know, that hardcore following of women's football, if you then start moving it to try and fit in with men's football and get that audience, are you then... It's not an easy question to answer. And there's people paid quite a lot. To kind of (laughs) sort that out, and I'm not sure we're quite there yet. But you know, as we say, City are lucky, and they're lucky with their facilities, but they've also used them really well. I think you know we can all agree that City are great on the media side, and what they do for us as journalists, as fans, for the players is is it's a model. And I think you know Man United didn't have a team for so long, and I think they wouldn't do too badly, as much as their fans will hate me for saying that. But to follow the way that City have gone about things when they join the league as latecomers as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I get the sense in women's football that the tectonic plates are shifting a bit. Yeah. And I was really interested that the Celtic manager, Ed Black, just happened to say Man United against Celtic's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> There's a logic in a club like Celtic coming into almost like a British women's super league, isn't
4: there? There is a logic. Whether it will happen is the big question because I think there'll be a big debate whether or not that is something is feasible, is it logical, is it something that fans will want to come and see as well. I think in an ideal situation, yeah, it'd be fantastic to see you know, Man United play Celtic. The reality, though, I think is very different.
1: Mm, but there are precedents, aren't there? UEFA you know, um, allowed uh, Belgium and, and, and Dutch clubs to actually merge.
2: I think, as Anne-Marie says... On paper and in speech, it makes sense. It sounds good, but I think, for a start, would you imagine Celtic fans coming down to Yeovil, for example? Mm. I don't, you know, I don't think so.
1: I think what he was talking about was in terms of it would enable him to keep Scottish players in Scotland. You know, there's a lot of the Hibernian players have come down into England. I think he, he was talking from a, you know, almost like a practical standpoint of recruitment.
2: But then. Based on that, how much more would Celtic have to invest? Because it's like we've just said about Man United, if Celtic were to make that statement and they were to come and join the WSL and make it a, a British WSL, would they just want to be mediocre? Because the kind of players they were talking about losing were you know, to Bristol, to Goville. Well, if, if you're wanting to keep those kind of players, you're going to be mid-table-ish. Mm. And it, I, I guess it depends how much they'd want to invest and in, whether as anne says, that would actually be allowed.
1: Yeah, but the Scotland coach, Shelley Kerr, has basically come out and said, you know, more the merrier, I want my players to play in England. You can understand that, can't you, mm. from a competitive point of view.
3: But I think, you know, for Shelley, it's win-win because the players are playing there anyway and they're developing so You look at Erin Cuthbert, Caroline Weir, Claire Emsley, some fantastic young players, but in terms of Celtic, I'm not a massive fan of the idea, if I'm being honest. Picking up on what Molly said, firstly, the logistics of it, you know, like you say... I think we've already a little bit alienated some of the more loyal, you know, fans that have been there for a long time with, you know, the structure changes and new teams coming in. I don't think they'll be thrilled if, you, you know, you say you've got to travel up to Glasgow for an away game all of a sudden and you know, at the end of the day it's up to the club to to push it further to, you know, make sure that you know, a club like Celtic could do that, to make sure that you can keep hold of your players and develop them, but It's also a natural progression, you know, and it's a compliment. If your players are getting taken by top English clubs, it means you're doing something right, you know. I mean, I'm sure Nick Cushing would have liked to have kept Lucy Bronze and Izzy Christensen at Man City, but they haven't asked to join the French League, Man City, so it sets a dangerous precedent if every time a team says, well, we're losing our players, we say, oh, we go and join their league then. It doesn't work for me.
1: Yeah, As a student of the World Game, Rich, um, what do you make of what's been going on in Australia? where you know it looks like they're now going to have an interim coach who's never coached in the women's game before. A lot of questions about the administration and the nature of the programmes. In a World Cup year, that's just basically shooting your foot off, isn't it? Mm.
3: Yeah, I mean, obviously we're not entirely privy to what's gone on, as the Australian media will be, but it, it seems a very strange situation from the outside when you've got a manager who was getting results who seemingly was popular among the players you know we've only seen what's happened on social media we don't know what's it's been like behind the scenes but even as recently as last week you got even former players who played under him coming out you know with so much praise for him and and how he was as a manager how he was as a person he's been on radio in Australia and you know, i saying that you know he wasn't aware of any cultural issues so you wonder you know if the FFA had a behind closed doors reason for getting rid of him? Did they want someone else in before the tournament and they wanted a reason to get rid? We don't know, I mean I think they need to answer some questions, you know, that maybe other FAs around the world haven't done in the past and it's just a murky situation, you know, because you want to know, you know, he'll want to know, people outside want to know, the media want to know, the players will want to know and I think if you don't give those reasons, okay there might be legalities involved but Every FA around the world, we're saying, well, we'll sack a manager and we won't say anything, we'll just sack them and and that's it. You know, at least as the FA didn't handle the Mark Sampson situation well, but at least we knew why he was sacked. You know, it was That's the
4: point, isn't it? It's why we knew Mm. why he was sacked. And that is the question about this whole saga what's happened with the Matildas. Why now? Why sack him? Why t- the timing of it, It's like five months before mm. the Women's World Cup. with, the Matildas are probably one of the possible favourites. I 13. think.
2: I think the problem with it. I understand what you guys are saying, and I understand the media want answers, and he will want answers. But in order to have confidentiality and for players to come forward, things have to be anonymous. And from what I've read, I understand that that's where this has come from. These claims about the culture around the team. And yes, players have spoken out, but if that was a player's opinion or somebody around the squad, then, you know, that's a more than valid opinion. It's just the way that it's been handled and the way that it's come out and obviously the circumstances, with it being the Matildas, as Amory says, you know, it was in great form. Um, it does make the whole thing a bit of a media storm that they really didn't need.
1: Yeah, but it's interesting. I'll throw this at you, Amory, if I may, and wanted to look at Australia as, a, as almost like a, a case in point. Some figures came out last week that interest in women's sport increased by 50% last year uh, thanks to an increase in TV coverage and positive portrayals in the media. That's not just what's happening down there. That's a principle that can be applied anywhere, isn't it?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I mean, using Australia as an example, they love their cricket, they love their tennis, they love their football and they've definitely increased their coverage over the last few years and it's paying off now. The dividends are now coming through and we're beginning to see that now replicated around the world, particularly around those three and you can throw rugby into that as well. But it's the momentum, that's the thing. You don't want the momentum to stop. You want it to keep growing and evolving and developing over this period of time. Um, And I think the Women's World Cup will definitely be a massive factor in that.
1: Yeah. Gianni Infantino uh, is saying, I'm convinced that we're starting a year that will forever change the way women's football is perceived. Is that politicised waffle or statement of fact?
2: I think women's football cynics will say they've heard it all before. And I think, as Anne-Marie says, yes, the World Cup is is a huge, huge thing and it can completely change the way the game is, is viewed all around the world, but particularly in this country. But I think also we've got to make sure that, again, as Anne-Marie says, we're building up, we're building up, we're building up, we're increasing coverage, the World Cup happens, it's over, then we need to make sure that we don't stop. We need to keep building, we need to keep building on it. You know, whatever the outcome, whether, you know, Hopefully they don't. But if England go out in the group stages, that doesn't mean that we should lower our coverage of, of women's football again. So I think it's really important that we have that real legacy of it, not just for the sake of the World Cup.
1: Mm. What about Rich? As this move now to increase prize money for the FA Women's FA Cup, you know, there's an obvious disparity. A club getting knocked out in the men's fourth round is 180,000. The women's is 2,000. Mm. Uh, Lewis are, are putting together almost like a working group. To actually discuss this,
3: what would you like to see come out of that? I would like to see increased prize money because I think what they get now is absolutely nowhere near enough for, for what you actually spend to host a game. You know, with all the kit, all the equipment, stewarding, all of that, you know, you're getting what, £2,000? You know, I think yesterday the winners got £3,000. And even as far as the semi finals, I think it's only as far as 5000 And, you know, some clubs are saying, well, you know, we're actually spending more. Than we're earning, you know. If we go out in the early rounds, we're spending a few thousand pounds, and we're getting 500 pound back. So I think, you know, nobody's asking for equality. Nobody's asking for the women's teams to get 180,000 because it's supply and demand. You know, a lot of the men's comes from TV money. We don't have that. You know, we don't have games on TV in the FA Cup to the very, very end. You know, on Sunday we had two games on Facebook. You know, and that's about as far as it goes. So look, no one's asking for the world, but I think if Two, three, four thousand pounds is the most that we can give these teams for how many games they're having to play and the cost they're putting forward for how big we say the women's game is. And you've got FIFA saying it's a defining year. Well, you know, some of the figures that go alongside it don't tally with what people are saying.
1: Is there a mission to explain if you look at what Crystal Palace have done, for instance, uh, inviting journalists down to share their training sessions? There's some good stuff come out of that in terms of giving people who don't really know the women's game an indication of the dedication it it requires to be part-time at that level. You know, players coming up, 11-hour shifts, 90 minutes to get there, and then they do an intense two-hour session. That's the sort of thing the women's game should be doing?
4: Absolutely. I do believe there's a mission to explain because the thing is, you know, we pretty much most people i'd like to think know the names of the players that are in the senior women's team that are probably going to go to the world cup but when it comes to club level i still think that there is not information enough about there about which players play for which teams it's great if you go onto the club channels if you follow man united if you follow arsenal but if you don't follow crystal palace or spurs or the london bees then it's very difficult to to get that information so i think it's fantastic what crystal palace has done i think it's an opportunity to build a closer relationship with the media as well and maybe it's something that other clubs can replicate.
1: So we talk about the media. You know, a lots been made um, of Rachel Brown's comments uh, on BT Sport, the debate about female punditry. What's your view of it? You know, all three of you work in the women's game and I'd be really interested in your perspective on that.
2: I think we're lucky enough. I mean, I speak for myself, but I think I can speak for anne as well, that in the women's game, that's not something that's talked about. You know, you regularly have your, when BT come down um, to a game, to, you know, Arsenal or Chelsea or wherever, and, you know, you often have all women as pundits, as presenters, and nothing's said about it. But in the same token, I don't think anyone, anything would be said if there was a male pundit. I just don't think it's that environment. And I know we said earlier that, you know, the men's games maybe a few decades behind in that respect and I think it certainly is because particularly if you look at somebody like Alex Scott I don't think you can sit there and say her analysis is any worse than any other male pundit and I think none of us would sit here and complain if the pundits weren't good enough it's not about that it's about their gender and that just shouldn't come into it the fact that that still comes into it it's quite sad really that She's earned her place, you know, Rachel's earned her place there as, as professionals, as very, very good England players, some of the best we've produced. If 80, 80 caps,
1: 16 years. Yep.
2: You and can't...
1: You can't,
2: you can't ask that, for can't. any more than that, no, can you? No. Um, and there's, I think that's the problem. There's nothing they can do, there's no, mat, there's no measure of analysis they can do that would stop this criticism. Mm.
1: As a male working in the female game, as an expert in the female game, Rich... What sort of grief do you get?
3: I don't, really. Fans, when you're in... Again, I think I speak for all of us and everybody that works in journalism, you always get people giving you some abuse on social media. But that's largely because of opinions rather than gender. But, you know, when I started doing this pretty regularly three or four years ago, really there was only probably two women that were doing it quite regularly and that would have been Joe Curry at the BBC and and Jen O'Neill who does She Kicks. And now three or four years on, we've got Anne-Marie, you know, we've got Molly at The Times, Katie now, The Telegraph, Susie at The Guardian, and they've all kind of emerged in the last few years, so I think it shows you know, that national media are more willing to give women a voice, but in terms of the pundit debate, I had a bit of a mini rant on this on social media last week, but going on with what Molly said, you know, Alex Scott, if you know, she was a right-back for many, many years, why can't she talk about a male right-back? The position's no different. You know, Why can't Rachel Brown talk about a male goalkeeper and vice versa? Because, yeah, they're different sides of the sport, but the position's the same. And I think social media plays a big part because everybody now wants to have the most extreme opinion at either end of the spectrum, and, and there's no real in-between. And, you know, everybody who says something bad against a female pundit now is sexist or something like that. You can dislike a female pundit. It's fine. You can dislike a male pundit. You're not sexist for saying it. If you say women shouldn't be on TV things like that, that's different. But having a difference of opinion, that's what football's about. If you disagree with Rachel Brown or you disagree with Alex Scott, it's fine. But, you know, there's male pundits I don't like, there's female pundits I listen to and think I disagree with them, but to say they shouldn't be on, I I don't understand it because, you know, they've played those positions, they've played in Champions League, they've played World Cups. Yes, it's male and female, but the situations and the positions are exactly the same. It's all about perspective, isn't it?
4: I think so. Just to, you know, I totally agree with Molly's points and I agree with Rich's points. It's, you know, there's this debate about, but, you know, she hasn't played, Rachel Brownfinish hasn't played at the top level. Yes, she has. She's played at the elite level. And I really don't like this constant comparison that women's football is like pub level or it's academy level, shall we say. It's football at the end of the day. And Rich is right. It's It's the same game. It's just a different gender. For me personally, I think it's tiring having to justify... Why it's my right, as a woman to talk about football? I shouldn't have to in this day and age, and Rich is right. it is about it, the football is about opinions, it is being down the pile or sitting around Sunday lunch and you're having a discussion about a team and and different viewpoints and what have you. None of it should be based around agenda and I'm actually getting slightly fed up having to justify why I have the right to do the job that I've worked really hard for and love and work with some fantastic people like Molly, Rich, Susie as well and Katie and various others. I shouldn't have to do that in this day and age.
3: But I think the other thing is as well, you know, I remember the 2015 World Cup when BBC went really big with it. They showed every single game so they had quite a large array of pundits and a lot of them were male, Mm. you know, male... probably. Didn't know too much about the women's game, but nobody said anything. Nobody complained Mm. because they're male pundits, you know. That's what you're used to. But if female pundits can't have a say on the men's game, surely it's the other way. You know, it has to be both. So, you know, if we're fine with having male pundits commenting on women's football, which I think everybody is, has to be the same. It's the same. You know, it's football. It's the same sport. It's just played by two different genders. Well, it beggars
1: belief. But we have to have this debate. It's not a question of gender. It's a matter of insight and education. If you think women have no place in football, have a word with yourself. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.